in college to a ministry called Ransom Fellowship. Uh, my mentor, pastor, was on the board of directors of this ministry. And it's a, a discernment ministry. Uh, that is, it was in designed to help Christians think, how, do we how can we discern the world we live in? And how can we live with faithfulness? And when I was in seminary, Covenant Seminary, actually, uh, Dennis and Margie Hack were the, the leaders of this ministry, and they did a lot of writing and speaking and that sort of thing. Uh, Dennis actually taught a class during uh, our January term, a Jan term class at Covenant Seminary that I really, really wanted to take. It was film and theology. For a couple of weeks, you got to watch a, a movie in the morning and then discuss it in the afternoon. That sounded delightful. What was not delightful was Hebrew that I had to take. But through that ministry, I was introduced to a question that I've thought a lot about that, it, it, that allows us to shift our perspective a little bit about the world that we live in. And here's the question. Do we live in Babylon or Jerusalem? Now, what would you find in Jerusalem? You would find, at least at certain points in the Old Testament, you would find there the temple of God. You'd find the people and the worship of God. You hope that you would find encouragement to live out your faith in the Lord, to make your sacrifices, to offer your worship, to know the forgiveness of God. You would hope in Jerusalem that you wouldn't be hindered, that you wouldn't be persecuted for following God your Lord. But what if you lived in Babylon? We see Babylon in the Old Testament as well, and, and Babylon, for certain folks, isn't that great in terms of encouraging your faith in the one true God. In fact, it might give you opportunity or even try to persuade you to worship another God, some other being, some other creation. It might put before you, you know, fine cuisine and induce you to walk away from the Lord as you spend time there in exile. So where do we live, Babylon or Jerusalem? Hold on to that question. If you are a citizen of Jerusalem but are actually living in exile in Babylon, then your perspective must shift you have to approach your faith and your fears a little bit differently. You have to live out the calling that the Lord has given you, but knowing that that could lead to your suffering, that there could be difficulty there. But that suffering is far from meaningless or insignificant. So here's my theme. The Lord uses our suffering for his purposes. He uses our suffering to accomplish what he designs for us in this world and through us. So how do we reflect that? Well, if that's going to be true, then you're going to need to rejoice in your Savior, reflect the Spirit's work, and rest in the Lord's love. Now, the main context of these verses in 1 Peter are the persecution that is just beginning to ramp up against Christians more and more at this time that Peter's writing. It is persecution that comes because Christians choose to follow 
one Lord, one Savior. And they don't bow the knee to any, including the Caesar. But that does bring challenges, and that will increase. And yet, as I say that, I want you to see, and I hope to show you, that these points apply broadly to our suffering, however we might suffer as followers of God. We can do those three things. We can rejoice in our Savior, we can reflect the Spirit's work, and we can rest in the Lord's love. So let's start with rejoicing in your Savior. I think it's critical to see how Peter begins here. He started the other section that we just finished, the big section that started in chapter 2, verse 11, with this same word as he begins this last major section, beloved. He's addressing these aliens and strangers, these exiles, and reminding them of their identity that is fundamental, that they must keep ever before their eyes. They are beloved of God because when they know that love, when they are assured of that love, then they will be equipped to walk in this world. You must know who you are in the Lord. And if you are a son or daughter of the living God, bought by the blood of Christ, then you are beloved. It's necessary to hear in the context of suffering, and I don't think I need to convince you of this in your own sufferings. You know in whatever you've experienced, when something waylays you, something you don't see coming or even something you do see coming, it begins to cause you to question all sorts of aspects of who you are. And maybe more importantly, does God love me? If God loves me, then why am I experiencing what I'm experiencing right now? And so Peter's reminding them this fundamental truth that though you will suffer, they will suffer. You are beloved. Don't forget that. Don't lose sight of that reality. So Peter says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Uh, That fiery trial might be an allusion to Daniel 3, which I mentioned, I don't know, a a number of weeks ago with Shadrach, Meshach, and a bumblebee. I mean, Abednego. As they were thrust into the fiery furnace. Why? Because they were following the Lord in Babylon. And that meant that they were going to suffer this persecution. Now the Lord would save them in an amazing way. But Peter here is saying, don't be surprised when that happens. This is exactly what the Lord said in John 15. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So that's exactly what Jesus said. That's what Peter heard from Jesus' lips. And the Lord uses that suffering, uses that persecution to prove our faith, to test us. We grow when we have opportunity to get close to our Savior. And I bet if we went around the room and we talked about 
the seasons of life that we have most grown in the Lord, probably for a lot of us, maybe all of us, it would be in those seasons of great suffering that we would say, I learned in that time, as hard as it was, as awful as it was, as painful as it was, I learned to trust the Lord more. I learned that His will and His way are right. I learned that I am a child of God. Whatever it is that you might have learned, the Lord is proving our faith and we're growing. And so rather than surprise, rejoice, verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share in share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You see, rather than being surprised, rejoice in what is happening. It doesn't change the difficulty of the circumstances, but you're rejoicing. And this is one of the most difficult commands in Scripture, isn't it? You know how uh, rejoicing comes up frequently. James talks about rejoicing in your trials. Paul talks about rejoicing. And again, I say rejoice, Philippians 4. Peter here talks about rejoicing. And when do you do that? Not when it's easy. Yes, do it then, but do it when it's hard. Because you can rejoice now because you are aware of the rejoicing that will take place when Christ returns. You can rejoice now because you are certain not of what is happening, but what has happened at the cross and what will happen when Christ returns. The Lord knows what you face. He experienced himself, and he keeps you through that. Your circumstances don't reflect your beloved state. That is hard to recognize sometimes. But your circumstances do not reflect your beloved state, though we will be tempted at times to doubt. But rejoicing severs the doubt and witnesses to the truth that Christ is the one mediator between God and man through his own suffering that he endured for us. And God uses those things. And so we rejoice in seeing. We may not see it now. We may have to look back many years to see how God has been at work. Bill and Amy Stern share an amazing story. Uh, Stalin, Joseph Stalin, one of the 20th century greatest villains, and that's putting it lightly, an evil man. And yet the Lord used Stalin's actions to bring about the work of faith in those who had not heard the gospel previously. Thousands of Koreans fled what is, what, what is now North Korea, but this was in the 1930s when the Japanese invaded, they were scattered. And they went many different places and they settled in Vladivostok, but as that became a we weapons manufacturing hub, Stalin thought those Koreans were a security risk. And so he re relocated them to five different areas around what it was formerly the Soviet Union, including Tashkent, the hub of the staunchly Muslim people, the Uzbeks. 20 million strong, the Uzbeks had for hundreds of years violently resisted any Western efforts to introduce Christianity. But as these Koreans settled around Tashkent, the Uzbeks 
Uzbeks welcomed their industry and their kindness, and they began to integrate it into cultural life. Well, guess what happened? Some among those Koreans were Christians. And so here's what the Stearns write. They say, as usual, in God's orchestration of global events, he had planted within the relocated Koreans strong pockets of believers. Little did Solon suspect that these Koreans would not only begin enjoying a wildfire revival among their own people, they would also begin bringing their Muslim, Uzbek, and Kazakh friends to Christ. In 1990, the first open-air Christian meeting in the history of Soviet uh, Central Asia happened. A young Korean from America preached to a crowd in Kazakhstan. But you know, that, that didn't, we look at the big picture and we can marvel at that, but we know that that didn't happen without cost to those believers. They would have suffered not only the relocation, but also often the persecution that came from being exiles, strangers, aliens, following out their faith in a place where it would be hostile to them. But we can rejoice because we can see now how God was at work and we can look in the same way at our lives. So don't be surprised when we suffer, but instead rejoice because you know that this is one of the ways that God works in the world. And we also not only want to rejoice, we also want to reflect the Spirit's work. All too often we end up with an unbiblical view of suffering. We unconsciously imbibe the world's lie that suffering is often due to your own fault. You did something wrong. Now, can suffering come about? Yes, and Peter's going to mention that. You can make the wrong decision. You can do the wrong thing, and there may well be consequences of that. But in general, we, we take on to ourselves this sense of, well, as long as I get the right education and I get the right job and I, I, I make sound financial decisions and in general I'm a good citizen of this world and of our culture, then everything will go well for me. Because what the world says, the world says is that the absence of, of, of suffering is the presence of favor. And that is not what Scripture teaches Sometimes the presence of suffering is God's favor in your life because he's working. He's using you. He's using your circumstances to make you more Christ-like. But even that worldly lie can take on a Christian veneer. You're suffering because you didn't pray enough. You're suffering because you didn't have enough faith. You're suffering because you didn't give your tithes and offerings, at least in the right amount. So let's pass the plate. One more time, right? It can take on a, a Christian veneer of all sorts and we begin to believe that. And so then when we suffer, we go, what's wrong with me? And actually, Peter's saying, no, 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 no. There's nothing wrong with you in that sense because you have an identity that is rooted in Christ. Look at verse 14. If you are insulted, Why? For the name of Christ, you are blessed. Do you see the favor? You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now this word insulted may not be strong enough. Uh, some translations you might have reviled. It means really to be kind of an outcast, thrust out, rejected. And why would that happen? Well, because of that identity that you have in Christ. 
insulted for the name of Christ. You belong to him, and if you belong to him, then you will become associated with him, and there are times in this world when you are associated with Christ, then you will be insulted, you will be mocked, you will be reviled, you will be rejected, you will be cast out. Peter connects us to the blessing, though, of being united to Christ by faith because that means the Spirit of God is at work within us. And we experience a greater blessing in that than the world can ever offer. Everything that we can receive from the world in terms of blessing comes with a thousand strings. Have you noticed that? We see this more and more in our culture you got to act the right way. you got to say the right things. you got to do the right things. And guess what? That is constantly shifting and changing, isn't it? And so you can be at the height of, uh, of favor in the world, but if you make the, r- the wrong step, it all gets snatched out from you. But the blessings that we have in the Lord are eternal and come with no strings. The only requirement is that we believe by faith in Christ. That is the means by which we receive what God has given to us in these blessings that are eternal. Ours is the kingdom and is everlasting. And and Peter certainly would have heard Jesus preaching on the Sermon of the Mount when he says, Blessed are you who are persecuted, for yours belongs the kingdom. You belong to that. And Peter here is drawing on Isaiah 11, 2 from verse 14, when he says that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Isaiah 11, 2 speaks of the spirit resting upon the coming Messiah. Well, that, what did the Messiah do for his believers when he left? He said, I'm going to give you something. I'm going to give you the spirit. That spirit's going to rest upon you. It's going to lead you in this world, even though I'm no longer here. I will be with you. You will not be left as orphans. You will not be alone. And so the Spirit rests upon you. And we get a chance to reflect that. So William Van Van Dudevard, that's a Dutch name, I believe, says the comfort is profound. The triune God is for and with his suffering children. The Holy Spirit's continuing his work. Now, Peter does give that caveat in verse 15. Don't suffer. Don't let anyone suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. So if you get caught shoplifting and you go to jail because you shoplifted, don't get to proclaim that you're being persecu- persecuted, right? You, you don't get to say, well, and don't, don't take a Bible, right? You don't, it doesn't work that way. Right? If you're suffering because of a consequence of your actions that are right, then don't claim some form of suffering that is from the world. So that caveat is there, but look at verse 16. He reaffirms that suffering because of our allegiance to Christ and our identifying with him is a reflection of the Spirit's ongoing work. Peter had said something very similar in chapter 2, sorry, not 2, chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. There is an appropriate level of suffering as a consequence for sin, and that doesn't qualify us for the blessings of the Lord, nor do those reflect the Spirit's work within us. But if 
for Christ, then let us continue to show forth the fruit of the Spirit from in us. And this applies to all of our suffering, as it is an opportunity for us to grow deeper in our faith and to see how the Lord is working all things for His glory and our good. We hear that in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So we rejoice and we reflect and we also rest in the Lord's love. There's a woman named Maggie. Her name was actually changed. Her story is told in the book Gospel Bound. And she's described as a small but feisty Asian Christian under the threat of constant persecution. She's the wife of a house church pastor in a country where it is illegal for him to be a pastor. And some of the leaders in their church were arrested and and she sought to continue to care for their families, but she was concerned that if she was seen as doing that, she might be identified and persecuted and thrown into jail. And she was afraid one night that she had been spotted by a police officer, but he had not seen her. And that did not keep her, though, from continuing to serve the families of those who were imprisoned. It wasn't her first scare. It wouldn't be her last. She had two close relatives who were jailed for six and 16 years, respectively. That sounds awful. So very different than our experience. But listen to what she says. She says, the Lord, through prayer, has made it possible for us to joyfully suffer. He has also guarded our hearts the entire time. You see what's going on? She's rejoicing in the Lord, in her Savior, and she's reflecting the Spirit's work. But then she also goes on to say, which I think reflects her resting in the Lord's love, she says, God promises to be with us in suffering. He does not abandon us. If the Holy Father who created heaven and earth and the Holy Son who saved us from sin and the Holy Spirit who is in us and continues to counsel us, if the three in one are with us, what more will we need? Yes, indeed, we can learn from such brothers and sisters in Christ. We can learn from this woman. She is resting in her triune Lord's love for her. And this chapter ends, a couple verses are maybe a little challenging, verses 17 and 18 in particular. This concept of judgment beginning at the household of God, that's an Old Testament principle that you find in a couple different places. And suffering of all types has a way of providing us perspective about what matters and what lasts. And so the Christian's hope is not in our abilities. It's not in our getting our acts together. It's not in how strong we are. Rather, our hope rests wholly and completely in God's love. And so we know the Lord's providing his salvation through Christ. And it's not just about what happens when we die, but where we are right now. And so the Lord is purifying his people and pursuing those who he's calling to himself and he can use the suffering or it can feel like judgment in this world to do that in and through us so even if our experiences are hellish we know 
that because of our sin, we deserve a much greater judgment. But what is our testimony? Our testimony is that Christ has taken on that judgment. We may be condemned by the world and facing a kind of judgment now, but we have been saved by the Lord's love. Verse 18 is a, a quotation of Proverbs 11.31, but from the Greek translation. So it's a little different if you were to just turn back there in your Bibles. But it doesn't mean that the righteous are barely saved, or scarcely it says in the ESV, but it's more like it, it's not an easy thing. It's not a light thing. It's not something we should take for granted. If that's the case, then what becomes of those who do not believe in the gospel? It's a rhetorical question, and it highlights the salvation as something that we do or can accomplish. Rather, it is a gift to receive. The sinner resists the love of God until we are wooed by the Spirit. And neither our sin nor our salvation are light things. And I think that's the point of these ver verses. And the Lord uses these trials to show us these things. And so ultimately we have to entrust ourselves to a faithful creator who loves and redeems us as we are led in his purposes. So you see that verse 19, therefore, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Our suffering is never pointless. It's never meaningless. The Lord is perfecting the image of his son within us. He's using our suffering. Do you see that it's according to God's will? And he's leading us in his ways. Our souls have been purchased by Christ. And as we rest in God's love, as we trust ourselves to him, we end where we began. Not the same word, not the same language, but the same concept. Beloved, therefore, entrust yourselves, even as you suffer. Another woman, a 13, uh, sorry, not 13, a 38-year-old attending church in Shanghai, when asked about her fears of persecution and for her family, she said this, my God will look after my family. So what should I worry about? If I have Christ, I have nothing to lose. We may not always understand God's love, but we certainly can trust it. So where are we? Are we in Jerusalem or are we in Babylon? I don't really think we're in Jerusalem. It doesn't take much uh, reading the news to see that. But I don't think we're fully fledged in Babylon either. I think we sort of find ourselves in, in between. But regardless of where we are, we know that the Lord has placed us here to be a city on a hill in North Alabama so that we might shine the light of his love even in the midst of our suffering because we can take with us his precious promise to be with us and do his will. Isaiah 43, I'll read just a portion. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes. 
and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. And we know that as we come to the New Testament, who did the Lord give in exchange for our life? What man did the Lord give? He gave the God-man, the Son of God, as a ransom for us to prove his love, to bring us out of our exile of sin, out of the domain of darkness, and to bring us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whose light we walk and we understand more and more the work of God in our lives. That's what God has done. And so we are then able to take that presence with us into sometimes a fearful world. Both the fears that are reflected by the world and the fears that we bring with us. But God says, fear not. Why? For I am with you. And so let us be reminded as we come to this meal that the Lord is with us. And he has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. So no matter what we face, no matter what sufferings or burdens that we carry right now, the Lord is with you. And he's for you. He loves you. If you belong to him and you've placed your faith in him, then this meal is for you. It's not for perfect people. For none of us would be welcome if it was only for those who are perfect. It is for those who belong to Christ, who have made a claim and identified with him. If you've done that, yeah, you've made that profession of faith in some form or measure, then come and receive this meal. If you haven't yet, we love you and we want you to know God's love. And we encourage you to continue to ask questions, to pray, to seek God's truth and to have his love confirmed in your life. But you can allow the elements to remain here. We do love each and every one who's here. But come and receive this meal as the Lord leads you. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this time. And Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we hear your word. And then we see in this meal your love demonstrated in a way that we can touch and taste or, or it can it, it's set before us. And we hear your invitation. We hear that you receive us. You welcome us. You love us. And you are continuing to work in us. So we thank you. We pray for the bread and juice and wine. And we pray that you would use them for your purposes. That you'd fulfill in us that which you have promised to do. And you keep us until that time which you take us home to yourself or you come again. Lord, we pray this and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.